Welcome to Flourish, the podcast. My name is Frank Bernard, and I'll be your host for this episode. Wherever you're listening from, we welcome you. Arthritis is a painful disease, and millions of Canadians suffer in silence from it. That's why we're here to talk about the quiet and often misunderstood challenges that are associated with it. We hope this will help you flourish with arthritis. Today we're speaking with Maureen Beauchamp, who is 37 years old and lives in Nova Scotia. She's a wife, the mother of two young girls, and works in finance. She was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis three years ago, which is causing her to wake up most nights with painfully inflamed hands and feet. She has sought medical cannabis as an alternative to opioids and struggled greatly to access the right products. She shares her story with us today. Welcome, Maureen. Hi. Our second guest was raised in Gimli, Manitoba, and is a proud member of the Pimichigamak First Nation in Cross Lake. Dr. Shelley Turner is a trailblazer in the medical cannabis community, specializing in cannabinoid therapies for addictions, sleep and mood disorders, and chronic pain. Committed to serving underserved population, she's a harm and pharma reductionist and is a leading clinical participant in McMaster University's database for cannabis consumption and study. Dr. Turner, welcome to Flourish, the podcast. Thank you. As we're now celebrating the 20th anniversary of the legalization of medical cannabis in Canada, it is still a type of medication that can be hard to obtain and that can prove costly. Maureen's story, which we'll discuss today, appears not to be an isolated case. Before we dive into your journey, Maureen, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your diagnosis and symptoms leading up to the moment where you started considering medical cannabis as a treatment option. Um, I was diagnosed in July uh, 2017. Um, It had been about after six months of having inflammation, um, inability, my joints would be very slow to move in the morning. Um, and then I had gotten to a point where I was in a lot of physical agony every day, took myself to our local, uh, walk-in emerge hospital and basically said to them, I, I need some help, uh, physically there is something wrong. I went, had blood work and basically five days was in and saw a rheumatologist based on my blood levels. And, um started methotrexate to treat the disease and was given um, through for pain management was given um, naproxen and a couple other I can't quite remember Um, I wasn't given opiates right away but that was they said if this doesn't work or if the pain becomes too much that would be an option I um, I'm fortunate I have a great relationship with my MD. And I said to her, I said, I mean, at that point I was 35. I had two young children and I said, I have a long life ahead. And I don't know if starting treatment course of opioids at my age is the best thing for long-term pain management. Um, My body, just any of it. I said, if there's any alternative, I would like to explore that. And so... I'm fortunate she was supportive. She doesn't, she was honest. She's like, I don't have the knowledge, but let's refer you to one of the cannabis clinics here in Halifax and see what they can do for you. So that's kind of where I entered the world. 
Um, we do have a pain management clinic. Uh, we've got a few here. Um, the problem is the wait list because it treats all patients for pain. Um, and we have a fairly aged population here in Nova Scotia. So I would be lower down the list in terms. So it could be two, three years before I was able to see right. someone at the pain clinic. So I went to more to a private cannabis clinic. Um, and since legalization here in Nova Scotia, there's only one um, pain clinic in Halifax. So that's that's where I went. And so I guess, you know, for you, the reason why it made so much sense was as an alternative to opioids, right? Um, I had just, I had gone through... Um, I mean, I've had broken bones in the past. I've delivered two children. So I've I've had post-op recovery of opioids. And even after a delivery, it's incredibly difficult. I found um, it was it was just something I couldn't imagine being able to control pain, but be able to manage my day. Um, at that point, I was working in a different industry. Um, I had to drive motor vehicles every day. So I wouldn't be able to consume opioids and continue with my job. I've got two children. So, you know, taking copious amounts of opioids to also be able to be a mom and be attentive was just didn't seem like it's just not something I wanted to do. So, I've... yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And so obviously you maybe had a bit of a you know past experience with cannabis before consulting, but were there any myths and misconceptions you had in mind before, you know, thinking about that as an alternative? Not really. Um, I'd had enough knowledge understanding that CBD is an intoxicant. I'd be able to continue on, you know, for the most, you know, um, not having it inhibit most of my day. Um, I guess my misconception, which I discovered, uh, was my experience that it's not, I expected it to be much more medical driven. So the serious conversation we had about my methotrexate, my expectation was it would be more medically driven versus what I experienced. It, it just wasn't what I'd expected. I, you know, like you'd said, 20 years in the medical, this has been legal. I just expected a certain elevation in terms of the medical approach to my disease versus what actually played out on honestly just trying to sell cannabis and it's kind of it was kind of my right experience. so perhaps that's that's what uh we're curious about here is how so once you get sort of the green light from your gp to say okay cannabis is perhaps something you can consider so you went to a different sort of a private clinic um and and what was your experience with that clinic how did prescription process? Uh, so I was referred, I went to a, uh, they're in the medical build, a professional medical building. So that was great. Um, I went in, I brought my husband with me because I wanted the support because to me, it's, uh, it takes me back to when I was first diagnosed and then I would cry taking my methotrexate because what it represented. And that's kind of how I felt about the cannabis that this wasn't for fun or partying. This was medicine because I have a disease that could cause damage to me. So I went, um, I had to have a urinalysis done. I had to pay cash to have that done. Then I met with a nurse who went over kind of what to expect on cannabis. Uh, it's not a cure-all. Um, just that I understood from a liability point of view, taking cannabis and what it would do. Um, and then I was moved on to what they refer to as an educator to help me kind of find 
um, the best product for me. Uh, he was very lovely. He wasn't knowledgeable in my disease, but was definitely knowledgeable in the product, which is helpful. Um, I have an oral allergy syndrome, so I needed, I couldn't have cold pressed oil. So we kind of found something alternative that I could use. Uh, and then he basically left the room, went and got a piece of paper sign, came back and said, I've got your prescription. We're going to send it off to the supplier. They'll reach out to you. And that was it. And I was kind of finished with the clinic. And then I think it was probably about a week, maybe later, I got an email from one of the large providers and said, we've received your paperwork. You can pick from these products. We'll send it to you. That was kind okay. of it. Dr. Turner, does Maureen's story sound familiar? I think in the day, uh, it, it sounds familiar. So you talk back in 2017 or 20... Probably late 2019, early 2020. Yeah, so about a, about a year ago. 20... Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So not, not so far far down the path. Um, so you kind of bring up very interesting points in regards to cannabis clinics versus um, getting your prescription from your physician. And so unfortunately, how the industry is set up because of how it's positioned and the worry about safety, there's tons of restrictions. And frankly, from a physician's perspective, there's what we say is not a lot of evidence. So this is what I get um, busted about a lot of times. People say, well, how can you do that? And why are you prescribing that? And so the evidence that we have is really for neuropathic pain, HIV, cancer, palliative care, those types of things. Um, so you have this risk-averse community of prescribers, which are physicians, and um, perhaps looking through a lens of stigma and prohibition, because this has traditionally been a drug of abuse and stuff that we would screen for, you know, and so that's, that's really the issue. So you have these cannabis standalone clinics that in, in the day used to be tied to a license holder or license producer that sells your cannabis to you and they have relationships. Um, most cannabis clinics or cannabis oriented clinics are, have relationships with the licensed producers, whether it's for educational agreements, etc. It's what they do with it. So your educational agreements goes to your people that are working to help you um, provide that education to your patients. And so in contrast, so in, in my day, starting off quite a long time ago, that was kind of the prescription mill routine. But what I realized very quickly, uh, so case in point, you know, we need to, to understand the science behind it and have a better understanding of the patient. Um, and so for, for our practice, it's, it's entirely different. We look at the patient, we look at your medication list, we do all kinds of screening, and then we guide you through the process in terms of dosing. And that quite often is, is what's lacking on, on many levels, just in terms of even being able to say, this is the standard, you know, rubber stamped seal of approval by all colleges across Canada, because we know that cannabis does this for sure. Absolute randomized control trial, repeat, repeat, repeat. We're, we're, we're nowhere near that. And that's a challenge because of the plant itself. And because of our really blossoming knowledge about endocannabinoid system, because boy, that's science. And that's taking me to a place in biochemistry that I don't want to go back to, but you have to, right? And so it, it is about um, the sophistication of cannabis through pharma, which is where, where we, 
need it to go. We need patients like yourself, Maureen, to be able to go to a pharmacy. And that's exactly like I was jotting notes and I said, why can't I pick it up with my methotrexate? I said, I'd be able to pick up my Tylenol 3s. I'd be able to pick up any more, you know, serious opioids. They'd have no problem sending me home from my local pharmacy with that. And... And so the other component of that, so how much do you pay for your methotrexate? So it, if you have insurance, is. is it covered? Yeah. And what nope. about your cannabis? Um, when I spoke to the private clinic, it was a certain income threshold that I wasn't, I was over. Um, and then, and it's, it, it, it was very, I found it cost prohibitive too. Um, Part of it, I was from that clinic, was self-directed on how to start slow dosing or micro dosing, and and yeah, it was pretty. It's it's expensive. It is, but the interesting thing is that if your provider, your your family doctor, who obviously you're getting very excellent care from, uh, prescribed opiates to you, guess how much you'd pay for those? Zero. Right, not a lot. Right. Zero. So, um, so case in point, if I may, I have patients that I have deprescribed off of opiate opioids, um, and then have to go back on because they can't afford the cannabis. And, you know, so you're seeing functional improvement, patients like feeling so much better and feeling more in control because, and here's the other thing. So again, coming back to this firm, hard, take this three times a day and you're going to feel better. This exact dose for everybody, cookie cuttering, kind of that, um, you know, looking for pharmaceutical kind of thinking, whereas cannabis is very, again, coming back to the diversity within our own genetics. Your endocannabinoid system is different than mine. So my medicine would be different than yours. That makes sense. Um, and, And that thought process of I need to take, you know, certain amounts of this type of drug to make me feel better where the patient actually it is that self you have to kind of go on that self-exploration but the goal i mean key i think is close follow-up so generally i have patients like they come back to me after a month if they're having some not quite sure about dosing or they can call in sooner and i had a, a conversation with a lady today who i'm you know i feel terrible for her she's disappointed because i can't give her the exact amount for her and so precision needs to come into that. And that's where we come into doing more research. Picking up on this, so, so you did have, uh, Maureen, you did have a bit of an experience with it. So you did have access to it, even though from this conversation, we hear that the process might have been sort of, it didn't feel quite as medical or professional. Yes, let's, let's put it like that. Uh, but you did, after all, get some of the products. Uh, like you said, you I think you were using something different than the regular oils. Did you did you feel the benefits of of using that product? Um, the guidance was given to me that you will you'll start to notice a difference slowly. Um, I had taken it probably about a month um, and had built up to probably what my dosage would probably be. They were honest with me. They said it'd probably be six to eight weeks, maybe until you start seeing some effect. I said, okay. Um, and then I ran into, because my I was only given access to one provider, supply issue became an issue. <laughs> um, I couldn't get the product I wanted. 
Um, I wanted a very high CBD next to no THC in it um, because the plan was to take it overnight into the morning because the morning is when I really have the most difficulty in terms of movement. Uh, midday, I'm fine. Once I'm up and moving and the blood gets flowing, I don't, the inflammation comes down. I don't have pain, but it's, it's the morning to get going. And, um, I tried twice. It wasn't in stock and wasn't in stock. And I only really had one skew to pick from. Um, and I only had one supplier to pick from. So that kind of limited what I could do. And even just for like, I did a little digging last night on our retail site here in Nova Scotia, we can purchase directly from our liquor commission. And there was one option for high TH, high CBD, low THC. Uh, I lied. There was two options. One was out of stock and the other one was about 40 to $50, I think roughly for a small vial of it. So supply became an issue. And then it just, I've got no support back from the clinic saying, I, what do I do? And it was radio silence. And then I kind of just gave up because I think like Dr. Turner said, it's, it's the support that I found was really missing. I'm fine with understanding. Yes, this is a plant. It's, we don't have as much clinical, very traditional science to it, but I didn't even have someone, you know, pointing me, no, the ship's going in the right direction. Stay on course. You're doing what needs to go. Well, keep going. Like not having any support from my supposed provider really took the wind out of my sails and I just, I gave up. Let's stop here for a short break and we'll be right back. Is medical cannabis right for me? How do I access medical cannabis? Will I get high? How do I use it? How can it help me? Get the facts about medical cannabis as an arthritis treatment option before talking to your doctor. Visit arthritis.ca slash medical cannabis. And we are back with Dr. Turner and Maureen Beauchamp talking about medical cannabis and the hurdles to accessibilities and the sometimes uh, undesired process of getting a prescription that can be troublesome, that can be tricky. Um, I would imagine living in a remote area can be a contributing factor uh, to that. So Dr. Turner, how do you make sure you're in the right hands? How do you make sure the people you are consulting are the right people pointing you to the right direction? That's a great question. Um, so I think I kind of need to step back a little bit and just have an understanding of the system in itself. So the Cannabis Act essentially is looking at adult use, which is your rec market. Your, you know, you can rock up to one of the dispensaries and buy your cannabis and go home and use it. And then there's the medical stream. And so coming back to that recreational piece, you know, as you can say, you can just w walk up and buy. But with the medical piece, you have to access a physician or a healthcare provider like a nurse practitioner. Um, and quite often, uh, every province has their regulatory body that manages physicians. So the College of Physicians and Surgeons, where I practice in Ontario and in Manitoba, and they have their own rules as it relates to medical cannabis. So um, some, some provinces are very strict as to how medical cannabis is provided. Um, from having your physician, your family 
provider having to, to write your prescription for cannabis, to uh, a consultant, and then, of course, to medical cannabis clinics, which are generally standalone. They're not offering any other um, medical services. And so the difference, uh, so, uh, and I can, of course, I'm going to talk about my practice because I'm a physician and my main area of focus is actually in substance use. So I, I provide opiate replacement therapy, but I also provide medical cannabis. Um, to come and see me at my clinic, you have to have a, an active uh, provincial health care card. And then you book an appointment with me. And if I ever ask you for money, it's either for bus fare or coffee, but I'm not going to ask you to pay me for my services um, because it is covered by the province. So in, in all colleges, I believe, there is uh, rules around uh, accepting money for a prescription. And so that is illegal. We're not allowed to ask patients for, okay, you're coming in, you want a medical cannabis prescription, it's going to cost you $100. We're not allowed to do that. And so generally that's standalone. If if you are a medical patient and you're looking for access to medical cannabis, if you have a family physician that's willing to write a prescription, they're few and far between because again, you're self-selecting to that area of practice. Not everybody is seeking medical cannabis education, but I think it's because again, coming back to the research and um, people needing guidelines. Um, Dr. Dr. Shelley, what mm -hmm. isn't it? It seems almost double limiting because both rural, um, I mean, here in Nova Scotia, the doctor shortage. So having to go to your family physician, when what happens if you don't have a family physician? Like, if you have to use a walk-in clinic as your primary caregiver for health, it seems so like you've got so many roadblocks to something that is something that should be readily accessible. And for 20 years and has been eligible. And I would even eligible. go further and say, even if you have access to a physician, your GP might not be versed, might not be comfortable to prescribe. And I can give you an example. So I have many people that walk in and say, I've asked my physician for a prescription and they were marched out on their ear. Don't come back. Um, but here's your I, opioid prescription. Well, I mean, it's what people know, right? This yes. is what we're used to prescribing. And there's a lot of pressure on that because uh, to de-prescribe and what you're doing is you're seeing a, a safe supply of drugs that has been prescribed into the community. And that's a whole other story that I could get into, but I'm not going to do that for these purposes today. Um, but People need access. So ideally, in you know, in our utopia of cannabis world, Maureen, you as a patient, me as a physician, mm -hmm. I would like to, you to come to see me as a patient and you could see me right across Canada. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had um, national licensing right across because then you could access, access me. You still can, so coming back to access. If your family physician wants to refer interprovincially and you have a physician that is on a provincial telemedicine platform that is provided your physician could refer interprovincially that, that's that's really good to know it is good to know and it, it's also an interesting thing to understand interprovincially or your provincial college uh, what their uh, take is on virtual medicine mm -hmm. so there's all of these college regulations that that bind us and nobody wants a letter from their college. Why are you doing this? So it's, it's very um, challenging to practice in this space. And so you don't have a lot of providers wanting to do that because frankly, it's, 
it's rough. It is, it is challenging because, you know, you're always trying to tell people, yes, this is going to work. And people always say, what's the evidence? And you say, it's coming. And, and a lot of it is already here. It's mm -hmm. just there isn't the discrete programs for people to have this training, even in, in university, in medical education. You know, if you've, I think if you've gone into medical education 2015 or after, you're learning about the endocannabinoid system. Pre six years. It's been six years. Like, that's wild. I went to medical school starting in 2003. Not one thing about endocannabinoid system. So this is all self-taught and, and learning from people like uh, Dr. McDougall and Dr. Mark Ware and all the neuroscientists, Dr. Matt Hill. Uh, all of these people are hugely important in building this body of evidence. And it starts with us. It starts with you, Maureen, as a patient as well. So we learn from you. And I'm so appreciative of patients when they come and they say, oh, my gosh, you know, this is what's happened. Um, and we monitor you and we watch you progress. And if you don't progress, we kind of try and figure out why. Mm -hmm. But it's it's learning from each other. So there definitely students. are some sure. key learnings and, and things to navigate when you are being prescribed cannabis, such as your other medication. People who have arthritis have, you know, sometimes a handful of medication they have to take. Um, how do you make sure that there's no interference? How does the system make sure that these patients are taken care of? Mm -hmm. So that's an excellent question. And we see that all the time. So in, in patients that are wheeled in by their, their grandchildren, you know, they're in their eighties, my oldest patient is 98. So they come in and they've got a laundry list of medications and, um, so it could go either way. Grand, grandkids want to help their grandparents and they give them an edible. Well, maybe maybe their grandparents are on a blood pressure pill. And sometimes we know that cannabis can actually drop your blood pressure. So that puts you at risk for falls. Some people take blood thinners. So if you've got you know, funny arrhythmias, you take a medication like warfarin or any of the other newer medicines in that area. Um, do you guys know the game yes. Plinko? Right. So the board, right? And you drop the chip in and it goes down these pathways. Think of your liver like Plinko. And so we have all these pathways that medicines go through and metabolize. And sometimes medicines will challenge other medicines, making the other one stronger, making the other one not work as well. And so cannabis goes through, you know, three or four different pathways that we're aware of, along with other medications like the blood thinners. So things like that, it doesn't negate that patient or you know, make them you know, not able to have cannabis as a drug. Um, but it means that you have to monitor them closely. So those are some of the things. What generally happens is that laundry list of medications, I take a, my, my blue pen and I write little dots beside those things. And I say, these are the things that I think we can deprescribe or really get rid of. And so that is the difference between, you know, having, going to a cannabis clinic, which I think, you know, is important maybe in, in some communities where there are physicians that are risk averse to writing those prescriptions. But I think as, as more evidence comes, I think you'll see more and more people incorporating this into their practice. And that's always my wish. I, I don't want to be the, you know, uh, one of, you know, 50 doctors out in Canada that are prescribing cannabis. I, I totally want to make sure that people are coming up behind me to, to care for these patients that are going to need the help. 
in 2021, is there still a stigma or a perception regarding, you know, social acceptance and so on, either from family, friends, work? Uh, is, is that still a thing? Maureen, were you, uh, were you experiencing some of that? Um, definitely. I worked, um, when I was diagnosed and started this journey, I worked for an American company. Um, obviously I worked here in Canada, but, um, my colleagues in the U S were randomly drug tested as part of their employment contract. Um, obviously it's not legal in my province or my country, but it really had a trickle down attitude towards, um, towards cannabis and it had a heavy drinking culture but as soon as cannabis was introduced recreationally you wore a black mark so even when i had decided to go down a medical road which is perfectly legal both medically and recreationally in my province it was something i actually kept secret from my coworkers because i i did not want career ramifications because I went down a certain road for my health. So fortunate, fortunately now I have a different employer and I work for with three women and it's all in Atlanta, Canada. So the attitude's definitely more improved and they're open to understanding why I'm going down this road. Um, whether they, you know, support it personally or not, I've not had any backlash or any feelings at all that uh, anything's in jeopardy because I've chosen to look mm -hmm. after my health. Yeah, I think, you know, at the Arthritis Society, what the messaging is and should be clear is that, you know, it's a medicine. It should be available. It's a medicine. People need it to uh, feel better and to improve their health conditions. So it, it's hard to see sometimes that, uh, you know, some employers don't feel the same way and treat this differently, even though it's been 20 years. Uh, it should be accessible. It should be affordable, and it should be super. It should be accessible under, you know, the right healthcare practitioner supervision. Is there anything else we can do, Dr. Turner, to change that perception that it's still sort of a, an alleyway drug uh, and not an actual medication? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm so sorry that happened to you, Maureen. But you're not you're, you're not alone. Um, and so changing changing you know stigma in post prohibition and i would argue we're kind of still in that i mean we're still uh mired in lots of policy that needs to change um but i think it really comes down to education and science i think um moving research uh, funding forward so uh our friends here at the arthritis society are you know very good at uh, supporting research um and i bug them a little bit about hey why don't you come and work with us over here? Um, but I think that in, and then providing that um, uh, body of evidence to, you know, talk about a pedagogical tool to educate physicians, right? How are we going to do this? And so um, I think it is really about the art and the science of medicine. And that's where this plant fits very nicely in. And we just have to be more creative in, in how we educate uh, around this. You know, I find I find it interesting and it just aside that with the previous company and it's under my medical 
plan, acupuncture wasn't covered. Yes, we don't have direct science, you know, there's not the case studies, but like 3000 years of anecdotal evidence that acupuncture, it helped me wonders the first six months of my diagnosis. Like, and I find it's the same thing. It's the attitude towards it because we don't have such traditional cut, dry, black and white scientific data about it it's just written off. Like it's just not supported at all. And I find that how are we ever going to get to that support if we don't take the chance to, mm -hmm. to follow down those roads? So you talk right. about what we're doing is evidence informed. I have a, a 8,500 patients. I have that much evidence in there that says I'm, I'm still here doing this work. You know, I'm on my sixth set of dentures because I've had my teeth kicked out a bunch of times. But <laughs> no, kidding. All kidding aside, it's challenging, right? It's challenging. So you're always kind of having to, to kind of fight for what you believe in. And it's really the patients that drive me because they tell me. They're going to tell me if this is working and they're going to come back and they're going to continue using it. Mm -hmm. And so our job as people that are providing that care is to collect as much evidence as that patient will give me. So I always start off when I see patients, I say, thank you so much for taking 30 minutes out of your day to do all those forms I've asked you to do. But it's important to hear your voice and it's important to track what we're doing. So quantitative, qualitative data is hugely important. So I can trace patients back from their first initial cannabis prescription all the way through their journey. And it's fascinating to see it. Yeah, it's a, it's a Turner, great ride to be on. For someone listening right now thinking, you know, I don't necessarily want to go the opioid path or maybe I want to add medical cannabis to the arsenal uh, of tools that help me cope with arthritis and pain, what's the first step and, and what, what should they be thinking about doing now? So the science behind that, when we talk about cannabis is opiate sparing ability. We have receptors for THC in our brain. We have receptors for opioids in our brain. Cannabis comes in, lands on the, on the, on the THC receptor, but it also kind of slides over and tickles. I always say the opiate receptor and my science friends are all cringing and dropping on the floor and they can't believe what an intelligent answer I've given there, but that's what I explained to patients. So when you look at how our approaches to treating pain, you know, it's the NSAIDs, it's the acetaminophens, it's, you know, you're getting, you know, weak opiates and you're moving up. Cannabis is fourth line, third and fourth line. So what I've done is just flip that around and I've put the, the cannabis first. And if patients want to try that, so we know that long-term use and of, of, over-the-counter medicines such as NSAIDs, which are you know very near and dear to us that live with arthritis. Mm -hmm. However, I find that patients that take over-the-counter NSAIDs are generally over-medicating with that, and then we know what the consequences of that can be. So if we can start there, even de-prescribing NSAIDs and other things, um, sometimes we don't even have to get to opiates. So I try cannabis first, um, microdose up, gradual increases, if patients come to me on opiates and they want to deprescribe, it's definitely a different protocol and it's different for everybody. But for the most part, we're giving people the same type of cookie cutter start, but at a month follow-up, everybody's doing something different. And then we tweak there. We want to know how this is going to work in your body. So for opiate deprescribing, um, I would recommend this as first line for sure. 
particularly if you're thinking about opiates, not if you're on on it fully, because then it's totally different protocol. Maureen, thank you so much for taking the time. Dr. Turner, thank you so much for your great explanations as well. We are most most happy to have you, you today and to speak about the challenges of getting medical cannabis and what to do if you are facing these challenges. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Flourish the Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to this series to get notifications when new episodes are available. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us at info at arthritis.ca. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests. They do not reflect the opinions or views of the Arthritis Society.